If you've got a Bible, you can open up to James chapter 1. And if you're um, new with us, we are launching into a series this weekend through the book of James where we're going to spend approximately the next four months together working our way through text by text and considering what God would say to us through this little epistle that's tucked away in the back of the New Testament. Uh, So over the next several months, we're going to become very well acquainted with what God has to say to us through the book of James. And through this little book that's situated again toward the end of the New Testament, God's going to give us a very clear and compelling picture of what real and vital faith looks like in our lives. In relationship to our words, in relationship to our work, in relationship to our witness, in relationship to our wealth. James is going to press on lots of stuff in our lives over the course of the next four months. He's going to press on our response to trials and challenges and difficulties and distress in our lives. He's going to press on the necessity of mercy triumphing over judgment if we have any hope, if we have any hope of surviving God's justice. He's going to press on uh, the way that temptation sets out to destroy and maim us, our response to God's good gifts that he freely provides in our lives. He's going to press on the source of all our bickering and petty quarrels. I don't know about you. I've got some of those in my life. And he's going to really unearth those and dig down to the root of them and help us to see why they exist and what inflames them. He's going to press on the short span of life that you and I have when he talks about life being a mist or a vapor and how we should leverage it in the time that we have this short season that we have on this earth. He's going to talk about the nature of true and vital faith of what real vital faith looks like in the life of one who claims to profess faith in Jesus Christ, how it expresses itself through works. He's going to talk about the power of our words and the tongue and the way that we shape the things that we say. He's going to talk about resting or resisting in the schemes of Satan, caring for those who are in need, the necessity of hospitality that is not laced with partiality based on demographic profiling. He's going to talk about reclaiming men and women from the flames. See, over the next four months, James is going to press on all these issues in our lives And my hope and my prayer as your pastor and for this church is that over the course of the next four months that God would do some maturing in our lives, that he would grow us up as we dig deeply into what he has to say. And what's going to require of us, we're going to have to fasten our seatbelts because over the next four months, right, there's going to be some turbulence in our lives. And my hope and my prayer is that there'd be turbulence in my life and there'd be turbulence in your life as the weighty and dense air of what God has to say through his word sinks into the warm and most oftentimes really fluffy and light context of our lives. And any time that, that dense and weighty air and that warm and light air collide, what happens? There's some turbulence and it shakes us. It hope that, by God's grace, I hope it shakes me to my core. And by God's grace, I hope it shakes you to your core and our church to its core to help us to see whether or not we're really living the kind of Holy Spirit-filled and empowered, Christ-exalting and exemplifying, and God-glorifying life that God has called us to. And so we're going to need to fasten some seatbelts or else we're going to get tossed around a little bit. We're going to get tossed around with the turbulence. 
But before we can jump into any of this that James has to say to us in these very practical matters that he's going to press into our lives, what I want us to do this morning is before we get into the real meat of this book is I want us to set the stage by thinking about who James is writing to and who he is that is doing the writing. Okay, those two things. Who's James writing to and who it is that's doing the writing? Because I think it's going to tell us something about the very nature of the rest of the book that we're going to be in for the next four months. And so here we go. Who is James writing to? Listen to who he's writing to. He's writing to those who are living as the people of God among the peoples of the world. Listen to what he says in James 1.1 when he introduces himself. In James 1.1, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. So James is writing to the people of God who are living among the peoples of the world. Now, James is not merely a letter. Most oftentimes when we open this little book toward the end of the New Testament, we think of it as being a letter that's going to really just give us all kinds of practical tips and tools and nuggets of how we can better our lives. But James is not necessarily a letter written to give us practical advice on how to manage our finances and how to balance a checkbook, right? It's not written either to help us build marriages or raise kids. It's a letter written to a people who are called to carry out the mission of Jesus' church. James is writing to the people of God who are living among the peoples of the world. They're called to live as God's people among all these peoples who are around them. Look at what James says in verse 1. He says he's writing to the 12 tribes who are in dispersion. Now, two things there. They're going to kind of lift off the page for us a little bit and show us where I'm getting this language from as the people of God among the peoples of the world. First thing is this. James says he's writing to the people of God when he says he's writing to the 12 tribes. Now, when you read that language initially, you think of Old Testament, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. But when you fast forward into the New Testament, what you're going to find consistently is that the apostles rob that language and they apply it to the New Testament church. For instance, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul calls those who do not depend upon their works, in particular in that context, the work of circumcision, he calls them who depend upon God's work of new creation in the heart, he calls them the Israel of God. He says those who aren't depending upon their works and their abilities and their aptitude to get in with God but rather on God's work of new creation in the heart. He says, you are the Israel of God, the true Israel. Or in Matthew chapter 19, even when Jesus is gathered with his disciples, he says that when he returns in his glory, in Matthew 19, 28, that they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one commentator said it this way. He says, in doing this, he was not creating a new Israel, He was leading the Israel of the old covenant on into its full intended reality as the Israel of the new covenant, the apostolic people of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so James, who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the people of God. The people of God. In fact, Peter's going to use this language in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he writes to the elect exiles those who are estranged from their heavenly homeland. And he says, they know God the Father, and they know God the Son, and they know God the Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 2. So James is writing to Christians. He's not writing to Jews, and he's not just writing to Jewish Christians. He's writing to Christian people who are just like you and I. And here's why. Because they're dispersed. They're not in a position of dominance. 
but they're rather in a position of being dispersed among the peoples of the world. He says, to those who are in the dispersion, they're scattered among the peoples of the world. This is also similar to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11, when he calls the church sojourners or exiles who aren't living in their homeland, but they're living apart from their homeland. So who God is writing to are those who God has saved and is currently sanctifying, but they are not yet at home and gathered in the presence of God. They are not in a position of dominance in the culture in which they lived either, but they're dispersed and scattered. In fact, James is writing to a cultural context, to a people who are marginalized in their society, who lack any degree of political clout, and who, in order to come to faith in Jesus, must have been willing to relinquish even their biological kinship ties with their families, because oftentimes to say yes to Jesus was to say no to your family of origin. Because you were ostracized. You were set aside. It was of no worldly benefit for people in James's day to convert to Christianity because there was no social, political, or economic advantages associated with it. In fact, there were often social, political, and economic disadvantages that came tied to conversion to faith in Jesus. So James is writing to those who are living as the people of God among the peoples of the world, scattered and dispersed among them. That's the context he's writing into. That's the people that he's writing into. And if you know anything about history, historians tell us that history has a tendency to repeat itself, doesn't it? Has a tendency to repeat itself. And for anyone whose head is not buried in the sand or the snow... Right? When you look around our cultural context today, what you begin to see is that the current cultural context in which you and I live and move and breathe in the 21st century is beginning to look increasingly like the first century cultural context. So I say it this way, we're quickly approaching a future that's going to look a whole lot like the past. History has a tendency to repeat itself. In the first century, the fledgling Christian faith Right, was just one among the many accepted worldviews in their culture. Right? And so you could be a Christian, or you could, fall, you could fall into, you could, you could be a Jew, or you could be uh, you know, a, a pagan and worship the Greek gods or the Roman gods. It was one of many kind of worldviews that were swimming around the ancient Mediterranean region. And it was that, that cultural context was pervaded by what's called pluralism, where there, there were multiple paths to get to God and get to the divine. And if you notice what's going on in 21st, 21st century America, pluralism is firmly established as a modern context. It's where we are today. So that you see people who go, yeah, well, that's, that, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. This is true for me, and it may not be true for you, because we all have our own paths by which we get to God. You ever heard that kind of statement or that kind of language or had those kinds of conversations with people? Right? The future that we are moving to is increasingly looking like the past that James is writing into. In addition, there was a time, in fact, the largest time of, uh, in our nation's history where identifying as a Christian brought with it social, political, and economic advantage. And in fact, it was often to your disadvantage if you didn't show up in church on Sundays. To see everybody. You're running for office, you show up in church. 
trying to start a business, you show up in church, right? There were social and political and economic advantages tied to being a public follower of Jesus. However, I think it's becoming more and more clear that as the days and the weeks and the months progress on the calendar of our nation's history, that those days have come and gone. Because over the last decade, we've been rapidly approaching a future where self-identifying as a Christian will not bring social, political, and economic advantage, but disadvantage. Disadvantage. And so you have to close your bakery, shut down your photography studio, be fired from your job as fire chief in Atlanta because of affirming and holding to biblical convictions. Those days are coming and they're circling back. They are the culture in which we are living and the context in which we reside, where Christianity will begin to be, begin to be squeezed to the margins of our society. And we will be like those James are writing to, those who are scattered among the peoples of the world, without, not in a position of dominance, but in a position of dispersion, where we become aliens and exiles and sojourners and strangers. Now, I'm not the only one who thinks this, okay? I'm going to give you several quotes from people that I've been kind of reading and reflecting on over the course of the last couple of weeks that I've thought about this text. A gentleman by the name of Lyndon Browning, who's the executive chairman of CARE, which is a Christian action research and education organization, said this. He said, Christianity is being increasingly squeezed out of our national life. The ultimate result of this tendency will be a society that is hostile to Christian truth and practice. The Mission Shaped Church report says the Christian story is no longer at the heart of the nation. Although people may identify themselves as Christian in the national census, For the majority, that does not involve belonging to a worshiping community or any inclination that it should. Many people have no identifiable religious interest or expression. Tim Chester and Steve Timmons in their book, Everyday Church, said this. They said, we may not often be persecuted, but we are marginalized. Faith in our culture is allowed to be privately engaging, but it is excluded from public life. In other words, you can practice that in your closet. Just don't bring it out into the public square or into your workplace. We need to wake up to the fact that the Christians live at the margins. Our society has no time for the message of Jesus, and our allegiance to Jesus as Lord puts us on a collision course with the priorities of our culture. And then yesterday morning, I got up early, went down to White Rock Lake, and went on a little run, put in my headphones, listening to a sermon. The, the, the next one up in the podcast uh, from a pastor and preacher that I listen to very frequently, he's named John Piper, put, it, put his headphones in, took off on my run. And he starts preaching. And as I'm listening to the sermon, I'm going, I'm like just getting punched in the face, in the gut. The ho- like running is hard enough, right? Can you stop beating up on me while I'm trying to run? But as I listened, I thought, man, He's hitting the nail on the head. And listen to what he says in this message called The Plundering of Your Property and the Power of Hope. He says, the church in America is slowly awakening from the distortion of about 350 years of dominance and prosperity in America. What I mean by dominance is that for most of American history, being a Christian has been viewed as normal, good, patriotic, culturally acceptable, and even beneficial 
What I mean by prosperous is that by and large, being a Christian has generally resulted in things going well for you, especially in the South. We are Christians in the South because we're Americans. What I mean by distortion is that this 350 years of dominance and prosperity has created a massive and deep unbiblical mindset, namely of at-homeness in the world. And it hasn't been good for us. To be a Christian is to be accepted. To be a Christian is to be comfortable. To be a Christian is to be secure and to be prosperous. By and large in America for 350 years, the call to be a Christian has not been the call to be an alien. It has not been the call to be a sojourner or an exile or to be out of step. It is the call to be a respected citizen in the community. So we get angry, really angry, if you treat my Christianity as though it is not the norm, my views of things as not the norm. You're taking away my culture, my land, my history. And I get mad at you because I developed a Christianity with assumptions that assume dominance and prosperity and normal and fitting in. This is our way here. And for the majority of American history, the church has been in a position of dominance, but we're entering into an era where that coin is now being turned. And we're going to begin to face the other side where we once saw heads, we're going to see tails. Because the Christian worldview and Christianity is going to be increasingly squeezed to the margins of our culture. And while there may be people who still identify as Christian, as someone said earlier, in the national census and the reports, because they don't know what else to identify as, the Christian worldview is is losing and waning in its influence in public life. Now, this is not a fear-mongering message, okay? I'm not up here this morning going, well, you, you need to brace yourselves and go buy as much guns and ammunition as you can find and stock up on canned goods, right, and, and, and move out into the woods because it's coming, right? This is not the message that I'm trying to preach to you this morning, Right? Because I believe there's going to be some very positive results, even beneficial results, of this squeezing of the Christian faith in our current cultural context. Right? But that God is going to take things that may, are not glorifying to him, and he's going to use them to do good things in the lives of his people and in his church. And I think one of the beneficial results that's going to rise out of this marginalization is going to be a pruning of Jesus' church because there's going to be a shrinking of the Christian-ish middle. Right? The Christian-ish, not Christian, the Christian-ish middle is going to shrink down because perhaps for the first time in American history, It's not going to bring you benefit to identify as a Christian, but it's rather going to bring you disadvantage to identify as a Christian. And so for those who were just in it for the advantages and the benefits that were associated with showing up at church and being a Christian and being an upstanding member of the community, as those get wrung to the margins of our society, those who were just Christian-ish are going to back away and abandon the church altogether because they no longer see a need for it to gain the social, political, or economic advantages it once offered. So for some, they will abandon the church, and for others, God will use that to awaken within them a need for grace. 
Because they're going to go, it hurts now to live this way. It's not pleasant any longer to live as God calls us to live. And I can't do it alone. And so for some, God who is going to cause them to be born again and see their need for him. And for others, they're going to abandon it altogether. So that Christian-ish middle is going to kind of get shrunk further and further and further and compressed where there'd be a pruning that would take place in the church. In addition, there will be a tightening of the fabric of Christian community within the church because as it gets harder to live as God calls us to live, as faithful followers of Jesus who are now scattered and dispersed as opposed to in a position of dominance, as it gets more painful and hurts to live this way, men and women who maintain faithfulness to Jesus and his people and his mission, they're going to be pressed together in ways that they never would have imagined a generation prior, two generations prior, three generations prior. So the fabric of Christian community is going to tighten as we learn to bear one another's burdens in ways that we never imagined possible or necessary. As we learn to spur one another on toward love and good deeds like never before. As we are forced to depend upon, encourage, and serve one another in ways that previous American generations couldn't have conceived. So there'll be a pruning of the church and a tightening of the fabric of Christian community. But there will also be a thrusting of Jesus' church out into the world to live among the peoples of the world. Because they're going to stop showing up here. On Sunday mornings. Studies have shown that even for a large, a large swath even of our nation have no intentions of stepping foot into the doors of a church, even in the face of personal crisis or national tragedy. So it's going to force Jesus' church out into the world. We can't huddle and hide and say, put out a front door sign and say, come find us, come visit us. It's going to force us and thrust us out into their context, into their culture, where we take those platforms and positions that God has placed us in and we leverage them for the sake of the mission that God has given us of sharing and showing, declaring and demonstrating the gospel message. Those of you who know me, it's no no secret that I enjoy running, right? So I get up in the mornings and I go run. And oftentimes I can kind of just tune out from everything around me, okay? So I can put in earphones or I can run along with a a good friend and we can have a conversation. And it's a a great thing. I, I enjoy it. But God, as I was preparing for this message, God really began to press on my own heart and on my own soul and say, listen, it's great if you just kind of stay comfortable with the people that you've always run with. Or you can go and do it by yourself and you can put your headphones in and you can listen to sermons the whole way and you can run and train. You can get beat up a little bit, encouraged a little bit, inspired a little bit. But what if you took that area of interest or that platform that God has given you and you stepped into other opportunities to begin to network and build relationships with people who do not know and trust and treasure Jesus. And so this week, I went down to the Rockwall Running Center, signed up for the Rockwall Running Club. I thought, I got I to gotta get out of this little rut that I'm in where everything is comfortable and everything is complacent. And everyone thinks the way that I do and begin to engage people who don't think the way that I do. 
and begin to immerse myself in relationships with people who are part of the peoples of the world and live as God's son among them. Some of you have platforms and you're connected to people that God is going to thrust you into and is calling you to step into and leverage those environments and context for the sake of the mission that he's called us to as we are living as his people among the peoples of the world. Who are you connected to? Who do you have platforms with? Listen, some of you, some of you, you're connected to hunters or fishermen or runners or crossfitters or ranchers or preppers. Live as one belonging to God among those people. Don't withdraw from them. Press into them. Some of you are connected. You're connected to city folk or country folk or Pinteresty crafters who enjoy building and decorating all kinds of stuff. Or you're connected to coaches or business partners or neighbors. Don't back away from those relationships whenever there is resistance, but push into them. And live as one belonging to God among them. Or you're a homemaker. A young adult, senior adult, high school student, middle school student. Don't back away when there's resistance. Push in, even when it hurts. Are you a Facebook or Instagram or tweeter? Right? Are you on social media platforms? Leverage those for the sake of God's kingdom and his mission and live as the people of God among the peoples of the world, not separated and withdrawn from them. That's who James is writing to. The 12 tribes in dispersion. What does he say to them about doing this? I'm going to give you two things and the rest of the time that we have together this morning, two things about living as the people of God among the peoples of the world. And the first one is this. If you're going to do that, if you're going to step into that, even when it hurts and even when it's painful and even when there's resistance, as our culture continues to trend and squeeze Christianity to the margins, it's going to require you to open your mouth and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God. Now listen, some of us have feelings of, of sibling inferiority, don't we? We might have an older brother or a younger brother, and they're a little better looking than we are, they're a little more talented in these areas than we are, or you know, things have gone better for them, or mom and dad seem to always like them, didn't correct them as much when they were growing up, right? All these kinds of things. Some of us have those feelings of sibling inferiority, and if there's anyone in human history who should have had a sibling inferiority complex, it's this guy who's writing this letter, Right? James, most conservative scholars would say James is indeed the, the half-brother of Jesus, born of Mary and Joseph. And so James's brother, listen, was God incarnate. James's brother was the second person of the triune God who stepped into human history. He was the promised prophet. He was the key priest and the king who was sent to preach and mediate and rule over all of God's people. Jesus' brother was the one for whom God's people had longed, and they longed to see him again. James's brother, listen, really never did anything wrong. It was never his fault, and he never started it. That's who James is related to through his mother, Mary. And yet in his introduction, notice what James says. He draws an equal sign between Jesus and God. He puts an equal sign between them. 
He says, he is a servant of whom? Of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, these are on equal playing fields. He draws an equal sign between Jesus and God. In fact, some ways that the Greek text gets rendered, literally it says this, is that he, he is um, the, the, he, that he, he is even more clear, right? That there's an equal sign between God and Jesus. And it says, God who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at what James has to say about Jesus when he calls him Lord and God, why should you trust what he has to say? Because some of you are thinking that, right? Some of you right now, you're going, why should I trust this dude? He grew up with the guy. <laughs> why should I trust him? Let me give you three reasons you should trust what James has to say about Jesus. And the first one is this, because James was not a homer. <laughs> All right? Now, when you look up homer in the dictionary, right? His last name isn't then Simpson, okay? Nor is it something that you do in baseball when you knock a ball over the fence. But this, when I'm using the word homer here, I'm using it in this context. Someone who shows blind loyalty to a team or organization, typically ignoring any shortcomings or faults they have. Like some of you in the room are cowboys homers. It's reality. Time of confession this morning, right? I'm a New Orleans Saint homer. I'm an LSU Tiger homer, Right? I grew up in that culture, in that context. And so I'm a fan of those teams. And so I'm loyal to them to the very end. I'm a Houston Astro homer, right? That's me. Some of you are Rangers and Mavericks and Cowboys, homers. I get this unquestioned loyalty, but that was not James. In fact, early on in Jesus' ministry, James rejected Jesus' claims. Just like the rest of his family, in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, James is, uh, Jesus is teaching, and the scribes and Pharisees come down to try and trap him and arrest him. And listen to what happens. Je Jesus goes home in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So James and his mother and, his, and Jude, his other brother, they go out to seize him. They said, this dude's crazy. He's off his rocker. He, they need to put him in terrell in a padded cell. That's what they're saying. That's what James's understanding of Jesus was at that point in his history, in his, in his life. In John chapter 7, verses 2 to 5, we're told this. Now the feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see your, the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. In other words, go make a public display of all that you're able to do, Jesus. If you're the Messiah, go show them you're the Messiah. And then the very next verse in verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. And so Jesus, brothers, James, it wasn't like James grew up in his home and he goes, man, I'm with you, Jesus, through thick and thin. I believe in you the whole way because you said it. No. So what happened for James? There's something about seeing a dead man come back from the grave. It revolutionized him and changed him. He wasn't a homer. In addition, he was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. So he saw Jesus' sinless life as a young boy, as a preteen, as an adolescent, as a young adult and a grown man. He heard Jesus preach about salvation and demonstrate the signs of a long-awaited Messiah. He witnessed his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, burial, a resurrection, and ascension. He was there when it took place. So he saw it. He was an eyewitness. But finally, 
At this point in human history, as we said before, there's no worldly advantage to declaring Jesus to be Lord and God. James wasn't getting anything out of this deal from a worldly perspective. Listen, this was not some grand conspiracy to make the disciples and the early apostles rich, to gain dominance. Remember, they're dispersed and they're scattered among the peoples of the world without any power, without any clout, without any authority. In fact, many of them were tortured and killed for their loyalty to Jesus. And so James didn't have book deals, earning royalties. Right? He wasn't on the conference circuit making 5 to 10K a weekend, traveling around speaking about Jesus and all these peoples to all, in all these places. He didn't have a television ministry, which he was garnering and kind of sucking in a little bit of income off the side. Right? He didn't have any of the things that we would consider to be associated with ministry in our day. He couldn't write off ministry expenses on his taxes, and he couldn't leverage his faith for a platform for public office. Right? There was no worldly advantage for James to say, Jesus is Lord and God. And yet he does. And if you and I are going to live as the people of God, among the peoples of the world, some of us are going to have to take our Christianity out of the closet and bring it out into the public square and actually vocalize on occasions and in circumstances and among the peoples of the world that Jesus is Lord and God. You have to confess it with your lips and demonstrate it with your lives. In the things that you say about Jesus whenever you're talking to people and his name comes up or church comes up, that you're going to have to step into those conversations as opposed to away from them. And you have to structure your life in such a way that your life then begins to demonstrate the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. So when people look at your life and they say, why do you sacrifice the things that you sacrifice? Why do you lay down the things that you lay down? Why do you forego the pleasures and privileges that could be yours in this world? Say, because of him. Because of him. So that you confess Jesus with your tongue and with your time, with your lips and with your lives. That it would be clear from a conversation with you whenever church or religion or Christianity or Jesus emerges where you stand with people. Not in a dogmatic, I'm going to beat you over the head with the Bible kind of way. This is what I believe to be objectively true, and this is subjectively what it's done in my life. He is Lord and God. It's the first thing we've got to do. Second thing is this. If we're going to live as God's people among the peoples of the world, is that we've got to come to a position where we acknowledge that we exist to serve him. He does not exist to serve us. Listen, look at what James says in the text. He calls himself a bond servant. A bond servant. And some of us would do well to maybe underline that, highlight that, make a note out in the margin, and just notice how Jesus or James self-identifies. He says, I'm a bondservant. God doesn't exist to serve me, but I exist to serve him. And you see, one of the marks of Christian-ish people who are kind of in that squishy middle, one of the marks is that whenever things get hard and it starts to hurt to follow Jesus, is they kind of back away. Because God is not meeting their needs. He's not providing their comfort that they were pursuing. 
things begin, begin to get squeezed in their life. And so they pull away from Jesus' church, and they pull away from Jesus' mission, and they pull away from Jesus' people, and they pull away from Jesus' word. They don't press into that in the face of resistance. could be an indication that you're just kind of Christian-ish, but not necessarily Christian, because you view God existing to serve you as opposed to God having created us, and we exist to serve him. See, some of us think that we're the master of the estate and that God is the butler and we kind of ring the bell. And whenever we ring the bell, he comes running with a plate of hot food and a warm towel. So what if it's the other way around? What if he's the master and you're the butler? What if, what if he's not your ranch hand and you're the owner, but you're, he's the owner and you're the ranch hand? And he's assigned with labor and task and work to be done. James says he's a bondservant. Notice he doesn't roll in. He doesn't take out his, his, like, his, 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 his credentials and pull rank and say, listen, listen, man, Jesus and I, we are brothers from the same mother, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't say, Jesus, I just didn't, didn't just share a room growing up, but we shared a womb, man. Listen, come on. You should listen to me, right? No, he says, Jesus is Lord and God, and I exist to serve him. I'm just his bondservant. Literally, other translations say that he's a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, slavery in James's day was not like slavery in the American colonies in the early days of our nation. In the early days of our nation, slaves were forced into slavery. In James's day, oftentimes, and what James is referring to here is a voluntarily giving up their rights and privileges and willfully submitting themselves to the yoke of a master. And it was oftentimes because they owed a debt that they could never repay with the resources they had available to them in hand. And James says, that's me. I voluntarily am giving my life and laying it down for Jesus, who is Lord and God, living as his people among the peoples of the world. James says, I'm just a bondservant. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this text said it this way. He was an apostle and he was the Lord's brother, yet he mentions not these greater things, but he takes the lowly title in which no doubt he felt the highest honor and calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Happy is the man who serves the Lord, whose whole life is not that of an independent master of himself, but of one who is fully submissive to the divine command. Voluntarily giving himself over, voluntarily giving himself up, saying Jesus is Lord and God and I exist to serve Now, what does a servant do? At least three things. Listen to me. First of all, a servant gives themselves up wholly to their master's will. They say, not my will, but yours. I'm not calling the shots. You are. Where you send, I will go. When you say speak, I will speak. When you say stay silent, I will stay silent. I will not resist your will. They give themselves wholly to the master's will. Second of all, they use their lives and leverage to extend and advance their master's mission. So their lives and leverage are not used just for the sake of personal benefit and comfort, but they leverage their lives for the sake of the mission that Jesus has given us, to live as his people among the peoples of the world. Finally, servants are used by their master in executing their purpose. Executing their purpose to bring God the Father great glory and for the good of all mankind. Now listen, here's a very technical summation of all those three points, right? Servants, what? They give themselves up wholly to their master's will. They leverage their lives to extend and advance his mission. And they 
or used by their master to execute his purpose. Here's a very technical summation of everything that I just said in those three points is this. Servants do stuff. (laughs) They do stuff, right? Servants don't show up and say, entertain me with a good band. Entertain me with a funny message. Entertain me, right? I'm here to be tickled. I want to laugh. Servants don't show up and just say, sit in a room and get, talk about all the things that need to be done, right? And go, man, this would be great if we could do this. It would be great if we could do this. It would be great if we did this. Servants show up and they get stuff done. They do stuff. They do stuff. And James is going to call us to that all throughout his little letter to these people who are living as God's people among the peoples of the world. He's going to say, You exist to serve Jesus who is Lord and God. And that means you're doing stuff. That you're doing stuff. That there is no such thing as a theoretical servant, right? There's no servant in theory. There's servant in actuality and reality and practice. So for instance, James says, Servants of Jesus endure trials on account of their master and for his sake in 1, 2 to 12. James says, servants of Jesus fight sin with the knowledge of God's good gifts in 1, 3 to 18. Servants of Jesus are doers of the word, not hearers only in 1, 22 to 25. Servants of Jesus watch what they say with their tongues and they care for those who are in need around them. And they are vigilant about sifting the values they embrace from the culture through the word of God in James 1, 26 to 27. And that's just chapter one. You want me to keep going? When go on in chapter two and three and four and five, servants do stuff. They do stuff. And my heart and desire is that we would be a church that embraces our identity as the people of God among the peoples of the world and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God. And we would do something. We would do something. That I would do something more than just stand up here and open the Bible and teach you that my life would be leveraged for the sake of his mission. I want it. So often I look in the mirror and say, I don't have it. I want it. Now some of you are going, man, I'm not signing up for this. (laughs) Right? Who's actually going to sign up to be a Christian if it hurts? Who's going to sign up to be a Christian if it means you get squeezed? Who's going to sign up to be a Christian if it's not normal? If you're going to be in exile, if you're going to be a stranger and a sojourner in a foreign land, who's going to sign up for that? And the only people who sign up for that are those who enjoy God. They don't just obey God. They enjoy him. John Howe, a Puritan author, said it this way. He said, God is not otherwise to be enjoyed than he is obeyed, nor indeed are the notions of him as a Lord to be obeyed and as a good to be enjoyed entirely distinct, but are interwoven and do run together. See, the only way that you're going to continue to acknowledge Jesus, the only way that I'm going to continue to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God and exist to serve his purposes is if, is if when we get squeezed, the only way we're going to continue to do that, when we get squeezed, if you say, you can squeeze me as tight as you want because my soul is satisfied in God as with the richest of foods. You can squeeze me as tight as you want, but I will continue to sing, let, 
good and kindred go in this mortal life also. You can squeeze me as tight as you want, and I will sing to the top of my lungs. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. See, unless there is an del- inner delight and enjoyment of God in your soul, when you get squeezed, you're going to get squeezed out. When I get squeezed, I'm going to get squeezed out. But if there is an inner delight in your soul for who God is and what he has done, then when you get squeezed, you're going to get squeezed in and forward. Do you enjoy him? The only way you're going to enjoy him is if you see is if you see that whenever Jesus was squeezed for you, he wasn't squeezed out. He was squeezed in. And he persevered and he endured even when it hurt and even when it cost him his very life. And if you look on that, with an amazement and a wonder. And it fuels you to live as the people of God, among the peoples of the world, to acknowledge him as Lord and God and live to serve him, no matter how hurtful it gets. Let me pray for us. Father, we come today. We give you thanks for your mercy, your compassion, and your kindness. We give you thanks for the truth of your word, which indeed abides forever, that your kingdom endures from generation to generation. No matter how marginalized your church becomes, it will never be snuffed out, no matter how tightly it is squeezed, because you have promised and purposed to make your church the means of your kingdom advancement in this world. While it may be pruned, it will not be destroyed. While it may be tightened, it will not be eradicated. And while it may be thrust into the world, it will not ultimately be overcome. Father, I pray for the people in this room that they would leverage the platforms that you have given them to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God and exist to serve him there. Your spirit would empower it as we look to Jesus and enjoy him. The one who was squeezed for us. And yet obeyed. He said, not my will, but yours be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.